Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina Conversation. Today's episode features Stephanie Kane. We're talking about her book, True Crime Redux, that comes out on May 2nd. Um, this conversation, it was just really interesting to talk to Stephanie about her really unique experience in that the murder of Betty Fry and her experience uh, being married into that family. Research the murder of Betty Fry to kind of get some background on that. And it talks, she, she talks about in her book how her experience of marrying into a family with that big incident where basically her unique position, her unique role that she played in that situation. And also, um, you know, how she wrote a crime fiction novel based on her experience, kind of borrowing from that. And then it kind of just uh, blew up from there. Um, But I, either way, the true crime fans will definitely get into this one. Um, But I do recommend that you look up the murder of Betty Fry before you dive into this one. But either way, here's Stephanie. So today we've got Stephanie Kane. We're talking about her upcoming release, True Crime Redux. It comes out on May 2nd. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, This book was so intriguing and fascinating. Your experience was so fascinating. It was, um, I appreciate you, you know, sharing your story out to the world in this kind of unique retelling almost of it. Um, So I'm excited to dig a little bit deeper today. Well, thanks a million for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Oh, yeah, perfect. Thank you. Um, So before we get started, can you kind of give like a little summary or synopsis of the book so people can kind of follow along? Sure. It's really true crime redux is really a true crime memoir. And that's because it recounts my experience over almost 50 years um, with a specific crime. And and the crime was the murder of my soon-to-be mother-in-law in in 1973 um, in a suburb of Denver, Colorado. I was engaged to her son. We were supposed to be married in two weeks and uh, the the morning that she was killed. Um, it, It was very personal to me, obviously, because I knew the family. I was about to join it. And also, I was one of the last people to speak to her. Her name was Betty Fry, um, right before she was killed. And I was also one of the first people to see her killer, her husband, Dwayne, immediately after she was killed. So I had very strong impressions of that day. And uh, I was married to their son for about nine years We tried to sort of put it behind us. Nobody talked about it. His father was indicted in 1973, but the charges were dropped for reasons we were never told. And then we just sort of tried to move on with our our life together. Um, Then we got divorced. And when I remarried, I told my new husband, my current husband, about it. And he said, well, you know, it's been eating at you for so long. Why, why were the charges dropped? And I, I didn't have an answer for that. So I researched it the only way I could, which was by going to the courthouse and getting the file. It was a very slim file. But I, so I started to process the emotional experience of it. And it was very emotional for me because I had this terrible feeling at the time of the murder that our impending wedding 
was a trigger for what happened. It was a very brutal, violent crime. Betty was beaten to death in her garage, uh, you know, two weeks before the wedding. And, and the Fry's were not in favor of the wedding. So I, I always had the sense that somehow the wedding had added some stress and had been some kind of a trigger. And so anyway, I started to process it when I got the file. <clears throat> I think that was the early 1990s. And then I just started to write about it just as catharsis, not with any plan to write a book or publish a book. I'd never written a book. I'd never taken a writing class. I was a lawyer, so I knew how to research and analyze, but I'd I'd never done any kind of creative writing. And so the book, which was eventually published in 2001 by Bantam, and it was called Quiet Time, that manuscript became my laboratory for learning fiction craft. It went through about 20 drafts, at least 20 drafts. And then it was published and it came out like a couple of weeks after 9-11. So it had a very short life and a quick death. But it had a resurrection of sorts because about four years later, a witness came forward, partly as a result of quiet time, and came forward with information about a confession that the killer had made. And that ignited a cold case. And I became a witness for the prosecution because I had, you know, seen and participated in things with them on that day. And uh, the case, for reasons that are too boring to go into it, it <laughs> lasted about, it went up and down the courts. It lasted about nine years. And, and when it was finally over, I was able to get all of the facts. I got the files from the 1973 case, which were, of course, more voluminous than what was in the court file. And I got the complete file of the cold case. And I, I really started to process it then because I finally had facts. And so I went out and I interviewed everybody I could get a hold of. And I, I just started to write about it as true crime, which is the way I had always wanted to address it. But I didn't have the facts when mm. I wrote Quiet Time. So I had to make it a fictional mystery. So that's, that's basically the origin of the book. And as a result of it, you know, I I had different levels of catharsis and um, self-acceptance at different times. I had to face different things about myself at each stage of the process. I had to face people who, you know, hated me because I was the reason why this case was coming up again. And Mm. it was very emotional at different times. But it, it, it really, you know, knowing the facts and being able to process them through writing has, you know, finally enabled me to let it go in an emotional sense. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I definitely want to like, kind of, because I want to like scale back a little bit and go into your background, because like you said, you're a lawyer and you start, was was Quiet Time like your first, because you write true crime fiction or true crime fiction, that's a funny phrase, crime fiction. Was Quiet Time your very first one? It was my very first one. And frankly, the crime was the reason I became a writer, because I started writing about it to to process it in my own head without any thought of it being a book. Or In fact, the very first draft was written in about 10 or more first-person voices. Mm. Trying to imagine what each person had gone through, and it, it was just to get some sort of closure for myself. And then as it started, as I went through draft after draft, and it started to look like a manuscript, I realized that I knew nothing about 
the, the craft of writing, much less writing fiction. So I had to learn. So each time I went out and I got a lot of books and I, I tried to apply the lessons. And so Quiet Time became my laboratory for writing fiction. And then after, you know, I had this short life and quick death on the shelves, I went on to write some legal thrillers. And then, you know, after the cold case was over, I, I wrote a series of books of mysteries. It was all genre fiction. Mysteries um, whose heroine was a paintings conservator. So <laughs> I've had two, like, series that have nothing to do with Quiet Time. But Quiet Time is the reason I started writing. That's, yeah, I, I think that's so interesting because it is, you have, yeah, your, your situation and your position and like your role in that whole um, series of events was so, it's so unique. And I imagine, yeah, that would, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate for you. I'm glad for you that you were able to find that outlet and find that way to, to just sort out your thoughts because yeah, I imagine the guilt or the, the sort of like, was did I have anything to do with this was it really like did they really not approve of, like did she really not approve of this that much where I you know and I, I that's totally I think that's totally normal for your mind for your brain to speculate that because and and as heartbreaking as it is it's like you know I, I I'm just like so fascinated by by the fact that yeah you you chose you found a way to kind of work your way through it and then that kind of just sparked your your creativity almost like sparked your interest in that in in that other path forward um you know, so kind of like yeah like kind of hopping off on that like so what um the thriller and the mystery genre like you know what what kind of draws you to that to those genres to that subject matter well i th- i think it's it's all uh, once I learned how to write a mystery through quiet time, <laughs> you know, it was natural. It, it wasn't such a huge leap to write a legal thriller series because I was, mm. a, you know, and I could make the, you know, as most writers do, whether they admit it or not, you know, the, the hero or heroine is kind of a stand in for themselves. So <laughs> I sort of just expanded my craft that way. But I, I don't think I don't think I would have become a writer if, if not for quiet time. And really, you know, it was a matter of almost psychological life or death because the 10 years that I, between my divorce from Betty and Dwayne's son and meeting my current husband, I was a basket case. I mean, I I was a high functioning lawyer, but I I didn't date anyone. I, I didn't tell anybody about my background. I mean, nobody had any idea, even when quiet time came out. I, I promoted it as pure fiction. Mm-hmm. Still nobody knew that there was anything, any basis in my background for it. So I, I, it was just, I spent about 10 years just in a deep hole. And it wasn't until I started pursuing the facts that I could, you know, face it in some kind of mature way. And as you say, I, I did feel guilty. I, I just, and, and I've, I've had to cope with that. You know, it's not like it just magically went away. Mm-hmm. But what relieved the guilt was finding facts and realizing that there were other things going on in that family, not just this marriage that people disapproved of, but just a whole bunch of other things. You know, the, the wedding, I think, actually was a trigger, but it was not the only reason why that happened. And that, that 
is what helped me understand it and ultimately move past it. So when you started digging into the facts, that was 10 years after you had divorced um, the original, your first husband, Doug, and then you were married to him for nine years. So then you divorce him. And then 10 years later, you start, what kind of um, sparked your reinterest in that to to make, like, what made you decide to, to start, you know, digging back into it? I think, first of all, I was in a, in a safe relationship. I was remarried and I've been married for 30 years to the same guy and we're very happy and it's been a good marriage and so I think there were two things first of all he asked me what happened and I I just couldn't you know in terms of why were the charges dropped and I didn't have an answer I mean I I wasn't even sure at the time that my father-in-law was the killer because we just didn't I had my impressions of that day And then there was sort of a wall of silence around it. So I I didn't even know if he was the killer. And I certainly didn't know why the charges were dropped. So so that was like um, an external thing that impelled me to look into it. But I I think internally, I just felt like, you know, I'm remarried. I'm happy now. I, I love and trust my husband. And, you know, this is a big part of my past. And I want to put it behind me. I didn't want to keep carrying it around with me. And, you know, little did I know that I would, you know, have to carry it around with me for quite a while longer before I really understood and, and came to terms with and could accept my, myself, you know, but that was the beginning of it. And so yeah. I had not met my current husband. Who knows what I, I probably still be a lawyer in a cubby hole yeah. <laughs> working 20 hours a day and, you know, leave me alone. You know, nobody bother me, please. Yeah, just like burying yourself in your work, trying to distract yourself and find out. Yeah, you know, at least if you couldn't pull yourself out of that like little dark bubble, at least like finding yourself a comfortable place in that dark bubble. Like, okay, I'm gonna gotta you know make make myself you know productive while I'm while I'm here. I think no, but good good for you and your husband, and good for him for kind of like you know just being genuinely interested. Like, well. Well, what I and then to, I have to make the full disclosure. My <clears throat> husband is a judge. Okay. <laughs> he, he really wanted to know why was it uh, you know. I think you did mention that in your book. So yeah, that, to give everyone context, that is very helpful. But yeah, that explains it, right? Where he's like, wait, what do you mean? What do you yeah, mean? Exactly. Like what there's something there. Like and, and then you were probably like, Yeah, maybe, probably. Like, <laughs> I imagine you were probably a little too frightened or, or you, yeah, you just weren't ready to like dig in and to. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, when you, when you numb yourself with work, you have to face the fact that when you come alive again, you're going to feel things and there, and some of it's going to be pain because that's what you've been protecting yourself against. So, you know, it's no surprise that it doesn't feel good to realize that, you know, maybe these Maybe these worst suspicions that I had were actually true. Mm-hmm. You know, the confession that that uh, was brought forward said that the you know the wedding was a trigger point. <laughs> you know, and so I had to face that my worst fears about my role in this were actually true. You know, so it doesn't get much harder than that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's to find, yeah, it's like if you dig, dig down and, and find out more and, and get in the case files and the facts that it's, yeah. Like, what are you going to find? Like only something that would reaffirm or confirm your deepest, like, like your guilt and yeah. yeah. Oh, I could only imagine. Yeah. That's, that's so crazy. Um, Kind of ha- happen off to that. Did you, so for your, like, the tra- the crime fiction stuff that you usually write um, versus this, because this is your first nonfiction piece. So did you kind of, did you approach, how was your approach for this one where, you know, with your research and putting everything together? Um, I do appreciate kind of like how you organize it in the short chapters too. I was just like, before I knew it, it was like on, you know, it was like on to the next little part and it was like, oh, okay, like, let's go. Like, it's so easy to get sucked in. Um, so how did you like, kind of, did you approach it the same, like, you know, with your memoir, your first memoir, your first nonfiction piece? It was totally different and it, it caught me by surprise because here's what happened. When I started to write about it in, in the early 1990s, I knew nothing. So I had these few little memories and then I had to make up everything. But, um, you know, <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum, in 20, whatever it was, 2020, 28, whatever, when I, after the cold case, when I tried to write it as nonfiction, I had the opposite problem. I had way too many facts. And they were all fascinating me because I knew all these people. So I was interested in every tiny little detail. And so I tried to write it as straight, traditional um, true crime. And that actually attracted a publisher, I mean, a, a, a good agent, and there was a, some publisher interest, but it never sold. And I think the reason it never sold was because I, I had, I'd stripped it down so it, it fit in a nice little compact book, but I took myself completely out of it because, and I, it was in third person. So it was this very detached kind of a thing, you know, and, and very detached for the reader. I, th- I think by taking myself out of it, because I didn't want to go back and do it emotionally, you know, that was a mistake. I mean, it just wasn't that interesting a story. So mm. in frustration, I turned to a blog and, cause I, and, I, and I wrote it in first person, which I had never used before. Because my first agent had warned me against it. She said, oh, don't ever write in first person because the book, the voice, you know, the voice runs away with the plot or the plot runs away with the voice and it gets tiresome and all that. So I disciplined myself never to use first person. But now I thought, no, you know, I want to I have to process this. I have to go back into the emotion of it and make it my story. So I did it in a blog and that is where the short chapters come from because the a blog five to 800 words, whatever it was, I disciplined myself to write it in a box, to write mm-hmm. each in a box and each box had to make a point. And so that became the structure of the book. And as you know, cause you read it, the each um, piece kicks off with a definition or a quote or some kind of idea. And that was basically a device for me to force myself to focus and make each of these pieces tight and focused. And then after, you know, I ran it on my website for, I don't know, a year, like installment a week or something for about a year. 
And then someone suggested, oh, you know, you should put all these together into an ebook. So I did. And I didn't do any editing or anything. And then when, uh, and that attracted a publisher. And then when I saw the whole thing together, it was a very humbling experience because I realized it's not, a, you know, a collection of blog, blog posts does not make a book. They need some connective glue. They need something to pull them together because when you're, if you think about when you, when you read a blog, you know, you dip in and you dip out. You don't necessarily read it, you know, every week. Mm-hmm. And it means that the blog writer has to keep reintroducing characters and stuff like that because each piece has to stand alone. But when you're reading a book, you know, you don't expect to be reminded constantly of things that you read in the previous chapters. So <clears throat> right. I had to do some serious editing, you know, with the idea that a reader was going to read all of these together as a unit. And I also added um, an introduction, which I hadn't been part of it before, because I thought, well, if the reader is going to be introduced to these short, you know, intense little pieces, they ought to get a taste of the narrative voice and understand what the narrator's stakes are before they're just plunged into this, you know, sort of firestorm and stuff. So, so that, that's kind of how the, the true crime redux as a book evolved. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So like what were kind of like the biggest lessons learned happen off of that Um you know, in terms of, you know, you being experienced as a published author for the crime fiction and then hop, like, were there any big lessons learned besides, you know, you had to straight up just figure it out? <laughs> well, I think I, as, as a writer, I've become more and more sensitized or sensitive to what the experience of a reader is like. Um, I've, I've focused a lot on that at the sentence level. And then, you know, I now focus on it in a new way as a writer of a book that didn't originate as a book because Mm. the experience of the, of the reader is more, you know, you, uh, let me just say this. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think most writers write for themselves basically to express something that they care deeply about. Sure. That you hope that through craft, you're able to express it effectively for a reader so that they care about it too. It's not that the reader isn't important. It's just that the main impetus comes from something inside of you. Um, So it's, we wouldn't have books without readers. I mean, you know, at a certain point you've expressed what you have to say, but then you have to think about, is it landing in the most effective way for a reader? And that's an intensely humbling experience. It's humbling every time you get a review where people, you know, didn't get it or they're not crazy about it or whatever. I mean, Quiet Time actually got a review, which, of course, I will never forget, that said Quiet Time is a waste of time, you know? And when, when, you, when you get something like that, you know, it really sticks with you. Yeah, those are the ones that, unfortunately, you, you remember yeah. more than, <laughs> than yes. the positive ones. Yes, and, and now I can say, well, <laughs> evidently not. But you know, it didn't it didn't move that reader. So, you know, if you if you care about connecting with readers, you have to be be, you know, take be willing to take good criticism and, and keep growing. So I'd say that, you know, writing is a continually humbling experience, especially in that sense, because people are always reacting to it. And 
You know, you want them to, to get what it is you feel inside of you. And if they don't, it's not their fault. It's because you did not effectively communicate it. At least that's well, what and I, yeah, and I could see that, but on the other way of it, it's like, you can't, you can't please everyone, you know, like, don't get hard on yourself. If, if, if you're not, you know, resonating with every single person that, that picks up your book, because I don't know, to me that that's a little suspicious. It's like, well, no, nobody's like, you know, nothing, nobody's like hitting, hitting all the check boxes with everyone, like every single reader. And, but I'm, I'm, you know, do you still read reviews? Because I think I've, I, a lot of authors have said, even when I interview them, they're like, I don't read reviews of my books. <laughs> I don't know how much I would believe that. I don't. <laughs> know. And actually, maybe it's better. I mean, if you get some re- some reviews that, that hate it and some reviews that love it, that's probably better than just getting, oh, yeah, I liked it. Because yeah. Some people are getting the emotion of it and, and some people just aren't. And that's okay. They don't, they don't, as you say, they don't all have to get it. But if, so I, I guess I, I look at the, um, I look for two things in my reviews and I, and I try not to dwell on them, but if, if there are certain points of intersection where people are, seem to be saying the same thing, that, then you have to go back to your craft and see right. if you can do it better. And the other thing is, you know, if you've got a lot of, you know, Oh God, you know, this really hit me and ugh, that's probably better than just, you know, mediocre. Well, You're getting a reaction either way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What you want is what you want is emotional engagement. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that can come in a variety of ways. Yeah. I mean, especially for this, because I can't I don't know. I this your whole story, your whole like situation just kind of like fascinates me. And and I so the wedding like still took place. <laughs> you still well, like married did, him and then and we did but it's, it's because you didn't you didn't want to like well I you know I was just turned 20. I was madly in love, you know. I mean you, you do crazy things when you're yeah. 20. <laughs> and I, it didn't occur to me to, you know, I loved him. Um so we we did we did postpone the wedding for a few months. Um, but we went through with it and you know, we, we, we made a life together for nine years. Um, but yeah. when you have such an elephant on the rug, you know, you, you're not talking about the most important experience that you've shared. It just. So at what point, like, I, I imagine you saw him, you saw your father-in-law differently after that. Like what, what point did you kind of, or, or maybe you kind of were afraid to, but like what, at what point did you start to like suspect him or did things kind of like come to light about like, or, you know, yeah. Like people like swept it under the rug or you got nobody. Cause you, you detail in your book too, like your brother-in-law at the time was with your father-in-law when this, when the scene, when they discovered the scene. Yeah. And so, and you even mentioned like, if it weren't for like relatives, he could have been severely like, damaged and 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 traumatized from yeah. that experience and like he was but, he was like 13 13 years old yeah and so like that's even just for like a family to not even talk about it but even then that makes it immediately suspicious like no we're just not we're not going to address this we're not going to therapy we're not gonna like nobody's gonna bring it up like it's we're just gonna move on and so like kind yeah. of like at what point did you like kind of 
start to be like, you know what? Like, I don't, I I didn't believe it for sure until I heard that he had confessed. Yeah. Because I came from a very different culture than the fries. We talked and fought about everything in my family. (laughs) You know, it was a, it was a New York Jewish family that just laid it all out. And the fries were just a completely different culture. And in fact, you know, I think a large part of the reason they rejected me was because, because of those cultural differences. So, you know, I never was comfortable with my father-in-law. I never liked him. He was always baiting me, you know, and I was just this nervous, you know, scared little 19 or 20 year old who wanted to be liked. So I, I never, you know, had conflicts with him, but I was never, ever comfortable with him, you know, and I just thought, oh, you know, different culture, you know, thank goodness we don't live with him, you know, that kind yeah. of, you know? Right, but, yeah. but honestly, you know, I didn't, until I actually got the information at the beginning of the cold case, I didn't know that he had, I was not positive that he had killed her. I mean, he, he was certainly behaving strangely the morning that I saw him. And I saw him within two hours after he killed his wife. And in, in an, an hour or two window before her, her body was discovered. So it, it was a prime t- moment to be experienced. Yeah. And he, you know, he was, he was, he was dressed in dark clothing. It was a sweltering hot day. He had a big bruise on his forehead and, you know, there, it was just odd that he was there at all, because as far as we knew, we weren't even sure they were coming to the wedding and, here he is all of a sudden, spur of the moment, 40 mile away visit, you know, on, oh, I came to, to look for a place for your wedding dinner. You know, what wedding dinner? It was just, there were just all these weird things. But then, you know, when you, when you marry someone, or at least the way I felt back then was, I have to commit myself to him. You know, we want to have a future together. And I, I just didn't imagine a future where we weren't together. So you, you decide, well, you know, to make this work, we're just going to proceed with life. You know, it's like we, we wanted it not to have happened. So, you know, and everybody around us was acting like it hadn't happened. So you just, you just get on with your, your life together. And you just don't realize that, you know, it's not really a firm foundation to be to be entering a marriage on when you can't talk about some enormous thing, the, the, the beating death of, you know, the mother-in-law, you know, and the arrest and <laughs> of the father-in-law. It's just, you know. Yeah. I can imagine like your awkward position there. And especially as like a newly, you know, yeah, like a young bride or bride to be where you're just like, you're not, you're not going to be the one to ruffle feathers. You're not going to be the one you know, I can appreciate that where there was already, you know, a little conflict, little uh, because of, of your different upbringings and, and you weren't Catholic, you weren't, you know, you know, other things about, you know, your lifestyles and experiences that they didn't, that they didn't approve of. And so I could definitely understand why you were like, okay, I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing kind of thing. Like I am also going to 
not ask questions or not dig deeper and and try to just have like a health a, like a good healthy marriage i could totally well, understand that you know i i also remember thinking you know is De- is doug ever going to smile again is he ever going to laugh again yeah. well to be happy again and to 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 talk about these things you know it just it wasn't something I was going to do because I loved him and I, I wanted him to be able to move forward. So, yeah. you know, and then of course the family scattered, like his father very quickly after the charges were dropped, started going out with a woman who had been there next door or two doors down neighbor she divorced her husband. They got married. You know, it took everybody by surprise. And they moved away. You know, they, they took the 13-year-old younger brother. And they, they moved to California. And then they moved to Florida. And, they, so, and, and the sisters, Doug had two older sisters. And they didn't stay around uh, Colorado either. One moved to California, the other to New Jersey. So it's like the whole family just scattered. So there really wasn't even anybody to talk to about it if I had wanted to. And I, and I didn't. And I, I remember I told my mother, my mother was the only person I confided in about my suspicions. And, and she told me, which was in retrospect, terrible advice, but I think I understand, you know, she meant it, you know, to protect me. She said, you know, you don't know any of this for sure. You don't know anything for sure. And anything that you come forward with is only going to hurt Doug. Yeah. To make up your mind right now, are you with him or not? And, you know, I was with him. Yeah. Yeah. And in the comment about the the whole family, it seemed like they didn't want to have anybody to talk to about it either. They wanted. Yeah. They, they didn't talk about it themselves. Mm-hmm. They they wanted to like go where no one would knew, know them or the the fry name wouldn't really be as known. Well, it yeah. was a very notorious case. You know, it was a domestic homicide. You know, there's nothing sensational about it that people would have connected to the name. But I, I think they all just sort of wanted a new start. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, this was like seven in the seventies, right? Like where, you know, if this, something like this happened today, it would totally be like national on the national radar, yes. you know? Yeah. Domestic homicides are getting a lot of attention. Now. Um, yeah. And, and especially it's like after re after reading your book, I'm like, he totally did it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you know, I mean, some of his children, continued to refuse to believe that he did. They were angry, some of them, that the court had, you know, come out. Because they felt like it was their business and nobody else's. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, justice doesn't just belong to the victim. It it belongs to all of us as as a society. You know, we have this thing called, it used to be that there were, you know, that that, uh, you were, I don't want to get too much into the weeds about this, but it used to be that to prevent blood feuds and in some places, you know, under Sharia law, it's still this way. You can, the victim can decide to forgive the person, but the victim's family can decide to forgive the killer. They can decide to take a payment for it. And it, it's, it's sort of a private way of justice. And, 
And the, the way that originated was to avoid blood feuds. But guess what? You know, uh, the Western world had the Enlightenment. And that was the rule, you know, the, the introduction of the rule of law and this notion that you can't, it, it, justice isn't private. It's, it's, a, it's something that belongs to all of us as a society. So they, you know, their mentality was, this is our business. This isn't anybody else's business. And, you know, that's just not the way the law works. At least not. Yes, especially with just such a violent crime. And like, you know, did they really, you know, did they think that there was going to, like, there was a killer on the loose if it wasn't their dad? Like, okay, well, then with that argument, wouldn't you want to make sure that, no, there are going to be no more victims? Like, exactly. it's you know, that's kind of where my brain goes to it. It's like, yeah, you know, you can't bring back, but like, what can you do? You can't bring this person back, but what can you do with it? Like, what can you do with this information? Like how, yeah. Like how, like what, what about prevention? What about like, how do we give some sort of solace or comfort or closure or what? Like, where, where do we go from here? Type of thing. Like definitely. Cause yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the whole world, there's been like a big you know, uptick in, in interest in true crime lately. And I'm, you know, I'm definitely not um, immune to that, to the fad. And I listen to like the podcasts and stuff like that. Um, so this was definitely like a unique take and, and kind of getting sucked into this like unique version where it's like, I'm speaking to someone who you, I feel like your position is so unique in that, you know, you were part, you were part of the family and and then like you felt you there's so many facts came out so much later like so many revelations and it's i think to me it just kind of proves like like if something's bugging you still or like if it's if you don't feel like something's right like there's like it's not too late even if it's justice will never come or you know you kind of touch on in your book there's like a different kind of because he was never convicted the case is technically still cold like it was never solved which well, right? Uh, I mean, they they listed as solved. Okay, they listed it as solved, even though they they it's on the Arapahoe County cold case website. It is listed as solved. But <laughs> no, I mean, what happened is that, that I was going to say how how does that happen? Either I I missed it or I've just <laughs> like, well, I they, don't get it. I think I think what you're alluding to is the fact that the justice system did not have a final resolution with him. And that's because the case just went, you know, the defense attorney's playbook, especially usually in every, you know, most criminal defense attorneys in many cases, their playbook is to delay, 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 because witnesses will become unavailable. You know, the more they can let the clock run, the better off their client is. And in a cold case, that gets magnified a million times because most of the time the witnesses at that point and the defendant are, older. And so if you can delay, delay, delay in a cold case, you it's predictable that witnesses will die. And in fact, that's what happened in this case. While it was, you know, going up and down the appellate courts on the legal issue of the admissibility of the confession, witnesses died. By the time it was all the way done, you know, there was no, they could have re-prosecuted him, but there was no point. I mean, everybody was in their late eighties or, or dead. Mm. The justice system in a sense failed Betty twice in 1973 when it was dismissed for rather hokey reasons. And then in 2005 to 2013, you know, when it was just 
going up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, there was no judicial resolution. But I personally feel that, you know, I feel satisfied with the resolution because Dwayne is no longer on this earth and he did not go in a peaceful way. You know, I don't want to mm-hmm. sort of, you know, spoil what happened. But to me, that you know, there, there was a certain justice in the way it ended. And, and when I heard he was dead, when I was contacted by somebody I never knew, they just contacted me and said, you know, did you hear that Dwayne Fry is dead? You know, from that moment on, I felt a certain peace. I really did. I felt like, okay, things are now back in balance. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's that we could get into a long discussion about what justice means, you know, but right. <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's a resumption of, of sort of balance in the world. You know, he's no longer a part of this world. He can no yeah. longer affect people. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you spoken to your ex about anything since the divorce? Or- no, <laughs> we haven't. Yeah. Had- I didn't have any contact with that family at all until the cold case. (laughs) No contact, uh, almost maybe 20 something. And, you know, they, they actually, they were so angry at me that the, uh, the cold case cops got a restraining order so that they wouldn't contact me because they were furious at me. I mean, you know, first of all, they hated me in 73 and then, gosh you know here it is all these years later and she's back and oh no <laughs> I, mean, I didn't do anything to, you know when i wrote quiet time i i did everything i could to first of all it was grossly fictionalized because i didn't have the facts and i was writing fiction i wrote it under my new husband's name which is my pen name i ch- bantam made me change so many i was very honest with them about the origin of it they made me change um, Denver to Widmark and Boulder to Stanley and you know the state of Colorado isn't mentioned anywhere except it's a state north of New Mexico which, <laughs> you know I mean I, and I didn't and they made me move the timeline up you know to make it completely unrecognizable so as far as I was concerned that was the end of the story um, but somebody as you know from reading the book saw me I had been interviewed when Quiet Time came out on a, on a little local TV station book show. And, you know, that show lost its funding and, and they just kept showing all these reruns at midnight of old interviews. And somebody saw me interviewed and recognized me. It was a family member and she came, it was the killer's sister who by then was in her late seventies. And she had kind of a crisis of conscience and she came forward with the news that her brother had confessed. And so I didn't do anything to make the cold case come, come out, you know, or happen. And when the cold case detectives contacted me, though, I have to say, I did not hesitate an instant to help them in any way that I could. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a moment of, oh, gosh, you know, do I want to get involved? It was not, it was relief. And I was, you know, as helpful to them as I could be. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you can't be anonymous, though, because it's like, <laughs> you know, even it's like you can't give an anonymous tip. It's like, oh, it's like, oh, it's her again. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, because you wouldn't, you know, you you kind of get you become the center of it, and then you know, of course, a 
the defense or, or who the prosecution in, in this case against you was like, oh, they just want to sell copies. And at this point, you how how much how much time had passed since the release of the yeah. book? At, right. Like five years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and, I, and when it came out, I stayed so far away from even hinting that it was any, you know, which could have helped sales, I guess. But I stayed just really far away from that because in my mind, it was totally fiction. You know, and I and the last thing I wanted was to have a consequence come out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, that's so crazy. That's wild. This is kind of a two part question. I was, I was interested. I, I like to ask authors this, but the, I'm very interested in, in your um, response. What, um, if any, what were the most uh, challenging parts to write? What were the most enjoyable parts to write? Maybe not enjoyable. I don't know if that's appropriate. I guess maybe about about the experience in general. Well, the most fulfilling parts to write <clears throat> at the end where I tried to make sense of the whole thing and what it meant for me and what it meant for how I looked at myself as a person moving forward. That was that was very, it was difficult, but it, it was that's really where I got my closure. The hardest parts I think were just you know, I still have this instinct to keep myself out of it. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, having written in third person and I, and I write in a pretty stripped down way, I try not to be sentimental, you know, and I, and I didn't. And, and so it was actually, I had to expose my, to make the story work, I had to expose myself in, in a very undefended way. And yeah. I'd never that with my writing before so I, I think that was like the hardest part but if I hadn't done that I wouldn't have gotten you know the for lack of a better word the closure yeah yeah absolutely so kind of piggybacking off of that um you've done it you're through it the book is going to come out in uh about a month and a half would you do it again would you do anything differently well if the question is would I marry Doug again <laughs> I, that's a, a really hard thing to answer, but you know, you get to a certain point in your life and you like who you are, or at least you accept who you are and you don't get, you don't get the chance to cherry pick the experiences that made you who you are. So would I change anything about my life? I mean, I, my life took a terrible detour when I met Doug. you know, I was like, I spent like 20 years in some weird kind of uh. Yeah, I I didn't I didn't have, you know, a a relationship with 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 a mate. You know, I mean, I I lost time. I lost a lot of time. On the other hand, you know, if I if I hadn't had to go through that sort of ruling experience, there would have been something else that would have forced me to look at myself. You know what I mean? When coming to terms with yourself is a a life's work. Yeah. Whatever it is you have to come to terms with, if you don't, it's going to come back to bite you. So, so this happened to be, you know, the big thing that I had to, that, that forced me to look at myself and, and, you know, decide if I was a good person or if I could look at myself in the mirror the next day, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. But, but we all have things like that. And I can just say, having come through it to the extent I'm able to on the other side, you know, if you've got that kind of thing, start looking at it and and come to terms with it because it doesn't get better as you get older. It doesn't. Yeah. It, things don't just disappear. You know, they they tend to fester. 
Um, that is so true. And I love that profound way that you say it, that, you know, the older you get, like, it's easier to accept, like, who you are. You get more comfortable with who you are. And I'm like, I'm in my mid-30s, so, you know, God willing, I've got, um, or the universe willing, whatever higher power anybody believes it. I, you know, I have more ye- more years on this earth. And I that's one definitely one thing that I've realized is that I'm more comfortable with who I am now than I was I'm proud of who I've become versus who I was 10 years ago. And even like 10 years from now, I'm looking forward to like growing even more and even looking back and being like, you know what? Like I'm, I'm not getting worse. Like I'm getting better. Like looking forward to just, yeah, to, to reaching that like acceptance and like, I'm, I'm, I'm accepting it, but I know that there's still like, no, it's going to take some time to kind of like, you know, I'm not like, I'm still, I'm not going to act like I know everything or that I've got this life thing down. Cause I'm like, <clears throat> I'm a, I'm a mom of two small boys. They remind me that I don't know shit like every day. So <laughs> I just like, they, they humble me for sure. Um, but yeah, it's just like, I, I appreciate that, that sentiment that you shared that it's like, you know, you get to a point where if it wasn't, if it's not this, like, it's, it's like, you can't ignore the little experiences significant or not or like even little and big experiences the huge the huge things that happen to you you can't like dismiss that as you can't act like it didn't make you who you are it didn't you can't act like it didn't get you to where you are today and like the person you are today and i i love that and i think if most people weren't so like you know hesitant on confronting that part of themselves like they would realize like oh this isn't this isn't that scary at all like you know it's it's one of those things where you're just like not once you kind of approach it and you realize that you cut, like how you said, like you come, you come out of it, just feeling better, like feeling more positive about it. Well, about it it's all journey. about growing and learning and that never stops. I mean, when it stops, that's when you really start to die, you know, yeah. physically or spiritually or emotionally or whatever, you know, as long as you're learning and reaching for greater understanding, you know, you're, you're, you're alive, you're in the game. And you, you, you know, I hope I never stop that. Mm-hmm. Because then I will be out of it, out of the game of life. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so just a couple more questions before we wrap up here, the cover. So I've looked at your book covers from like your website for your previous <laughs> works. And I, I see like definitely some consistency there with like um your uh, crime fiction novels, but this one, you know, understandably different. So did you have any say in the cover? Did you have like a vision board? Did you have any ideas? Like, how did that go about? Well, the publisher contracted with a woman who does covers and we we must've gone through about 20 really different concepts. She had one that sort of looked like a Betty Crocker cookbook, which was really interesting, but um, it it didn't kind of capture the, you know, the, the grittiness of the crime. So but when we got to this one, I, I really liked the, uh, the typewriter, kind of the old typewriter kind of font. And we were all in agreement that, that we liked it. So there was a lot of collaboration. And in fact, working with this publisher, Bancroft Press, it's been a great collaboration because um, I, I got a lot of freedom of how I edited it, you know, and, and the interior design and everything else. So that's that's been a rewarding kind of a thing. And we were all on the same page. And and the same thing with the title. I mean, my, my previous title was something like Cold Case. Well, the blog was called Cold Case Story Blog. 
So with my lack of imagination, I called it cold case story. The publisher, <laughs> and he just came up with this, you know, true crime redux. And I thought, ah, that's great. You know, end of story. That's perfect. So, you know, there's a, there's a good working relationship and a good kind of collaboration. That's great. Yeah. Some authors, they don't, you know, mostly when I ask that question, I know they don't want to step on too many toes by like saying anything negative, but usually it turns out to where like, you know, it wasn't what I thought, but I really like how it turned out. So (laughs) at that point you have to like it. (laughs) Yeah. And you want to trust like the publisher and and their experience and their, you know, their, their input and things like that. Like they've, they kind of know what sticks out, what catches readers eyes on the bookshelf and things like that. Um, And that, uh, your the cover for this one definitely it is a little gritty. It's like just an, a, enough of gritty, like just a little touch, just a little teaser. Like like it was really funny because I got the advanced copy in um PDF version or whatever, like for the Kindle for my e-reader, and so I didn't initially see the cover until I think I was like. I don't know, halfway through and I was like, oh, what does the cover look like? And I was like, oh, <laughs> like, okay. I was like, but that's like, ooh, all right. Like, yeah, it's, it's so, it's a little bit foreshadowing, but it's also like the reader is like, what? Like it has no idea until, you know, they get into it. Okay. So lastly, uh, do you have, what's next for you? Are there any projects that you're working on that you could talk about? You know, I think I've I've sort of come full circle, uh, at least on the story that made me want to write in the first place. So it, it kind of feels like I, I don't. I, the short answer to your question is, I have nothing that I'm working <laughs> on in a long form, um, and I don't know that I'll ever go back to that because the whole thing that made me want to be a writer was to tell this story. And I, and I learned a lot about fiction craft doing other stuff, but it sort of feels like it would be a step backwards for me, you know, to go back into the genre fiction thing. So I'm not going to say I'm never going to do it because, you know, writing for me is a way to come to grips with an idea. Yeah. And that's, that's what it means to me. It's not being an author and putting out another book. It's just, if I've got an idea that I want to explore then yes, of course. Um, at the moment, I don't. So, you know, that's where I'm at. Yeah, fair enough. That's, yeah, I, I love that. Kind of looking at like you, you writing the crime fiction initially started off with this experience and your way to cope. And then now that you've been able to like come back around, reflect, tell your side of it, say what, you know, share what you've, what you've discovered and in that closure you know, and that really therapeutic closure for it. Um, I like that. I, I think that's fair. That's that's definitely fair. Uh, as put it fairly for sure, where you're like, no, I'm 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 good for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, Stephanie Kane, where can readers and listeners find you on um, the internet and social media? Um, I have a Facebook page, author Stephanie Kane. It's Kane with a K and my website is writerkane.com. Perfect. Perfect. So, yep. Stephanie Kane, true crime redux comes out on May 2nd. Thank you so much. This was such a, it was so fascinating to talk to you and your unique, um, you know, experiences and, and how you just worked with it and made something productive and left something behind with, with your experiences. Very cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for putting it that way. Yeah. (laughs) 
Absolutely. <laughs> and there you go. That was Stephanie Kane talking about True Crime Redux that comes out on May 2nd. Check out the show notes for links to her website, her social media, and to pre-order the book. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, The Nerd Cantina and Cantina Book Club. Read my book reviews on thenerdcantina.com. If you guys are picking up these books and you find that you really enjoy them, please do rate them on Goodreads and Amazon. It really does help the authors out. As always, thank you guys so much for listening.